0: are talking about joy. As Alberta read the scripture for us today, it's the time of the Advent season where we talk about joy. And there's usually a few different uh, feelings about joy right now. Some people are excited. It's Christmas. You're kind of like Buddy the Elf. It's like December, the month you've been waiting for, and you feel joyful and happy and excited. And then some of you probably have the feeling of, eh, it doesn't feel much like Christmas. It's been kind of a tough year, a lot of things going on. You don't feel exceptionally joyful right now, and I think some of us, probably the majority of us, have a little mixed feeling, feel a little joy one day, then the next day, not a whole lot of joy. It's a tough world we live in. There's a lot of hard things going on today, and so I think a lot of us have a question right now, where do you find joy? How do you find joy this time of year when there's a lot of things that really could overtake you that you'd actually feel pretty sad about? There's probably a lot of things going on in each of your lives going on in the world, COVID, sickness, that it's just easy to feel more grief than it feel joy right now. So the big question is, where do you find joy? Well, since it's Christmas, we all know you look in the manger. You look at baby Jesus, and that's where we find joy. You always find Jesus and joy. They go together. They're kind of a package deal. You don't get one without the other. But if you look in the manger really close, you're also going to find grief. You're going to find some sadness in that manger. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. That Jesus would have to come to this world and experience a tremendous amount of grief so that we could all experience joy. So grief and joy, they go together. You usually don't think about putting grief and joy on a Christmas ornament. But really, they should go on an ornament together because you really don't experience one without the other. I don't think it's, actually, I think it's impossible to experience a tremendous amount of joy if you haven't experienced a little sorrow or grief. It usually seems like to the degree that you've experienced sorrow or grief is to the degree that you're going to experience joy in your life. There is something about experiencing loss that gives you a capacity to experience joy, maybe in a way that you haven't been able to if you didn't experience some hard situations. And a lot of you have experienced hard situations. And so there should be an expectation to actually receive more joy than actually sorrow in your life. The prophet Jeremiah said to the Israelites, he said, For I have given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrowing. There should be an expectation that if you're having a hard time right now, that there should be an expectation that you're actually going to receive joy. So part of Advent isn't just the expectation of love and joy and peace and faith. Advent is more than just a season of waiting. Advent is also an invitation to ask hard questions. It's an invitation to say, how is all of this going to work? It's one thing to say, look in the manger and see Jesus and find joy. Put your eyes on Jesus. But how's it going to work? See, I'm grateful that in the story of the birth of Christ, when the angel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, Mary, you're going to have a son, that she was bold enough to say, okay, I believe you. I'm going to go along with this. But how is it going to happen? She was brave enough to say to God, "I, I don't get it. You know, I'm going to follow you. I'll do what you're calling me to do. But honestly, I don't get it. And see, Advent's an invitation that we can all say, God, I don't see how this is going to work out. Because I'm looking at the situation. I mean, Mary, I mean, smart girl. I don't get how this is going to happen. And the Lord answered her. And the answer that the Lord gave her was, the Holy Spirit's going to hover over you. And that's the answer for each of us today, that no matter what situation that you're in, is that the Holy Spirit will hover over each of us to make His plans and His purposes happen in our life. But we have to keep our eyes on Jesus right now. That's all we need to do right now. See, the beginning of this year, I said in the service in January, I said one of the key verses I think that we need to remember this year is 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, which says, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Once again, the Israelites were facing an enemy that was coming against them, and King Jehoshaphat was saying, We have no idea what to do right now, except we're just going to put our eyes on Jesus. And I think that's such a strategic verse for all of us to remember, no matter what is the situation, no matter what feels like it's coming against you and you're feeling like, I want to run in both right now, is to follow King Jehoshaphat and just say, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus right now. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to hover over me and accomplish the things that He wants to in my life. That we would have the confidence throughout this year, especially as we wrap up this year, to remember that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, He will take care of whatever battle we're in. So I want to focus today on a few verses that Alberta read. So you've read uh, Luke uh, two, and I want to focus on a few verses, verses nine through eleven, where it says they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's such a good verse about the joy of the Lord coming. But also in that verse, you have the word terrified and afraid. Those words also mean fearful, or it's the idea of wanting to run away. You don't expect that again these words to come together the word terrified and fearful and wanting to run away as well as joy you don't expect those words to be in the same sentence but again that's such a theme throughout scripture terror fear anxiety wanting to run away because you don't know what's going to happen But yet right in the midst of this verse you have the antidote for fear and anxiety and that's the good news that's going to bring great joy to all people so you see even the laying out of scripture it's the joy that is the antidote for all the difficult situations that you're going to go through in your life so what is the good news that's going to bring joy that's the question what is the good news and the good news is simply the savior The Messiah, the Lord, has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's the good news. Now, the good news is an interesting word. In the Greek, the word for good news is euangelion. A lot of people translate it as the gospel. A lot of times when we think of gospel, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four first books of the New Testament. We refer to that as a gospel. But the gospel is actually just simply means the good news. You could say the entire Bible is the gospel because it's the good news. So in Christian community, when we talk about the good news, we always know it's referring to God's plan of salvation. That's kind of church talk. But when Jesus, or when Luke was writing down these words, the good news, that word, the good news, that Greek word euangelion, that had a meaning for that word that was going on way before Jesus came on scene. If you lived in the Roman Empire during the first century, even before Jesus was born, and you heard the word euangelion, you would know that word's packed full of meaning. It's not really a churchy word. The word euangelion simply means that it's an announcement. It's an announcement that's going to bring good news to people. And the announcement means either, number one, a new king has been born that will come to rule over the people, and he's going to be a good king. Or the second meaning of euangelion is that your war has ended. So back in the first century, if you, somebody would say to you, hey, I have some euangelion for you. I have some gospel for you. I have some good news for you. The first thing that you're going to think is, yes, a new king has been born who's going to defeat the old king, and our war has finally been ended. So just living in the Roman Empire back in Jesus' day, when you heard good news, you're like, yeah, this is exciting, this is good. We want a new king. Nobody liked the emperor of the Roman Empire. Everybody wanted a new king. So the idea of good news is going to be exciting for people because finally that new king is coming and your war has ended. But see, also the good news, what they had to do back in the first century, if there was some euangelion, they had to send out messengers to take that message to everybody in the, whole, um, in the whole empire. So they would send out messengers, otherwise known as preachers, people that would communicate the gospel, Evangelion, to the community. So that's what's going on in first century. You're listening to the word, Evangelion, a savior, a Messiah, a new king is going to be born. People are naturally excited And we should all be excited by the good news that our, that a new king has been born and that our war has ended. But the truth is, sometimes we're not that excited because sometimes we seem to experience more grief than we do joy. And sometimes it seems like our grief is heavier than the joy that we should have. And sometimes that's frustrating It's difficult. What do you do when you feel like you carry more grief than you do joy? A lot of times we're like, I'll fake it. Let me just pretend that I have more joy. I'll put on my happy face. But that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to be real and honest during Advent season, to acknowledge before him, if you're not experiencing joy, to be transparent before him. The rest of my message, I want to focus on four verses in the book of James. James 1, 1 through 4. And if you have a really good memory, I preached a lot of this passage in the beginning of this year. Because I knew this was the passage that we would have to really understand this year. But also, I think it's good to close with it this year as we come to conclude this year. To remind ourselves, where do you really find joy? James 1, verse 1 through 4. It says, James a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. I consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I love those four verses. And I think those are very strategic verses for us to hear and to remember. At first glance, you can sort of look at what James is saying, and you think, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible to do it. I don't know if it's possible to look at my life and say, consider it pure joy. That seems a little bit unrealistic. So what does James really mean? Now, to understand what James means, you have to even look at the very first verse. James is pretty clear-cut, and he says, he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of an interesting way that he begins his letter. Normally in that first century culture, if you were going to write a letter, you would tell people all of your credentials. You would say, I'm James, I'm an apostle. Or I'm James, I'm a pastor. Or I'm James, I'm the brother of Jesus. But to be quite honest, he doesn't identify really who he is. You're kind of wondering, what James is this? Is this just a new James character? We have no idea who it is. Except he says, I'm a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what James is saying in this very first verse, look, I'm going to give you some instructions that seem a little difficult. It's easy to hear the instructions that I'm going to give you and think, you know what, that, that's maybe for people that are apostles or fancy leaders like yourself. But James is saying, No. This is a message for anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a message to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and anybody can do this as long as you're a follower of Jesus Christ. James saying, look, this letter is written to all of you. And this was a unique audience that James is writing to because the audience that James is talking to are the first century Christians who were living after Jesus' death on the cross, and they really aren't having a very good time. This Christianity was not what they expected. The good news that they expected was a new king was born and that their war has ended, but yet they're finding themselves in the middle of a bigger war because people hate them and want to kill them. It's not what you really expect when you become a follower of Jesus, that you'd go undergo a lot of persecution, that you'd go undergo a lot of ridicule, that your family and your friends would mock you and would pick on you and try to kill you. So this is the crowd that James is addressing. He's writing to people who are actually fearing their own life, that they could be killed because they're a follower of Jesus. And so he's writing us to this crowd, and he's saying, hey, count it all joy. And he kind of wondered, did these people get the letter and think, that's stupid advice. What do you mean, count it all joy? This is a terrible situation that I'm in. But honestly, I think when people read that letter from James, I think they became very encouraged. I think the letter was a very encouraging letter they received, and I'll explain to you why. Because see, James has two specific goals for this group of people. They're undergoing a lot of difficult difficult situation right now. He wants his readers to understand that all the hard things that you're going through right now Everything difficult in your life right now is going to produce stability. Every hard thing in your life, everything you hate, everything that you want to go away, everything that you're praying, God, please deliver me of this, James is saying that's going to give you stability. You're like really? And the next thing that he wants you to know is all these things that you say are hard and are difficult and you dislike he said someday you're going to look at them and they're going to be very very insignificant to the bigger plan of what god's doing in your life james is encouraging the reader saying yeah it's hard right now but it's going to give you stability it's hard right now but there's going to be a day you're going to look back and say that wasn't as complicated as i thought it was so james jumps right into verse two and he says that he puts it on the table consider it all joy my friends when you meet various trials consider it all joy my friends when you meet various trials james knows these people are struggling they're wondering should i leave the faith should i renounce the faith should i tell my family and friends i'm not a christian anymore And he's saying, consider it all joy when you meet various trials. Again, it sounds like impossible. It doesn't sound like that good of advice. So what does James really mean? Now, first we have to understand when he says, consider it all joy when you meet various trials. The verse various, that word simply means various. All trials. And I like that he did that. Because see, sometimes we do this in the body of Christ. We kind of think, we rate our trials, our hardships against other people. And we think, oh, what I'm going through, that's kind of insignificant compared to what they're going through, so I better not talk about it, or I better ignore it. Or, or they want people, they're asking for people to come forward for prayer, and I'm not going to go for prayer because you know, really what I'm going through is insignificant compared to that other person. James is saying, don't do that. He's saying, whatever's hard for you is difficult for you. And God is watching. He's saying, whatever difficult situation in your life, don't ignore it or say it's not significant because it's different from somebody else's. No, everything you're going through is hard for you. So don't compare it to anybody else. So James is saying, okay, let's, let's all be honest about what we're going through. Let's all be honest. And so then he says, consider all joy. And he got to wonder, how do you consider it joy when it's Christmas and there's some people that are not going to be at your Christmas celebration this year because maybe a death or maybe you have fractures in relationships. That's hard to consider that pure joy when tragedy hits the family. How are you going to do that? See, let's just be honest. There's some things that you can't call Joyful. There's some things that you can't just say, I'm going to call it joyful and give it a new label. But see, James isn't saying to do that. He's not saying ignore your problems. Instead, he's saying, I want you to look at them in a different way. See, when James says the word to count it all joy, what James is doing here is he's giving the followers of Jesus a promise. I think it's easy to look at this verse and you think this is another requirement that God's saying to me. All right, consider it all joy, and I'll go consider all joy. No, God's giving you a promise in this verse. It's a promise of what he's going to do with every difficult and hard situation in your life. Let me explain. See, when James says the word, count it all joy, that word for, the word, when he says consider it all joy, that word consider, the Greek word actually means to count. It's an accounting term. Some of you are like, yeah, my Bible translation says count it all joy when you meet various trials. Because it's a, technically that word is an accounting term. And what James is asking the reader to do, I want you to do what an accountant does. Write down all the difficult things that you've experienced in your life in one column, just like an accountant would, and add it all up. It's like, Okay. I'll write down every difficult thing in my life that's happened, and then I'll add it all up. What that's going to equal is a whole lot of grief and sorrow and trauma and hardships. But James is saying to the reader, I want you to do that. I want you to add up every hard thing in your life. But James is also saying what I want you to do, and then have another column where you write down all the ways that God has blessed you. Write down all the ways that God has given you joy. Write down all the ways that God has helped you out. Write down all the ways that God has got you out of a difficult situation. Write down all the ways that God has reconciled relationships that you've had with other people. Some people call that a gratitude list or a grateful list. And what James is saying, I want you to add that column up as well. And he's saying when you add up the joy column in your life, it's always going to be greater than the sorrow column in your life. That's what James is saying. He's saying, consider it pure joy. He's not saying make up anything. He's saying to be honest, and you add it all up, and you're going to find out that God has blessed you and given you way more joy than you've experienced sorrow or grief. That's why James can say, add it all up. So suddenly you see how this verse becomes a promise from God, God's not going to tell you to add something up and just make you lie on the math. But see there's another promise of what God's going to do here for you. Cuz sometimes you might feel like right now no no my my column of sorrow and grief that actually seems to be more than my column of joy. See what God's promising is that he's going to add to your joy column. It's a promise that God is saying, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how hard your situation is, even though you look at it and you think it seems like there's more grief, He's saying, I will always add to it. That's the promise what God wants to do for you. He's going to give you more joy. Even though right now it doesn't feel like it, God's given you that invitation to count it all up. That doesn't mean that we have to keep track of all the hardships in our life. If God promises there's gonna be more joy in your life, that means God is gonna keep better track of all the hardships in your life than you or I could ever do. Because if God's gonna keep his faithful promise, he better make sure that the math equals out. So that's why we can forgive people, that's why we can release people from judgments. That's why we can bless people that curse us because we don't have to keep track of all the sorrow and difficult things in our life because God's going to do that for us to make sure that he's always going to make sure our joy column is even bigger. But I think sometimes in our life we think, oh, well, I better keep track of who I'm mad at. I better keep track of the hard things in my life. So someday I will experience more joy. No, God says, I'll do that all for you. So let me be God. You just keep your eyes focused on me. You forgive people, let it go, and I'm always going to add to your column of joy so that you're always going to experience more joy than you will experience more grief. And then James goes on in verse 3, and he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's another awkward verse. There's so the word Testing. Nobody likes the word testing. We think of testing, we think of school. We think of getting a grade. We think of testing the purpose of to show you where you have a deficit. So, sometimes we read this, okay, great, I got to go through a test, and God's going to see how, what, no. What testing means in this verse, it's a word used to talk about how to remove impurities from metal. So what God is saying in this verse is that the testing in your life is going to be a process that will remove things from your life that you do not like. Testing of metals is a process you go through where you heat up the metals so much that it burns away any impurities in your life. And that's what God is saying is going to happen in your life when you go through difficult situations. It's going to remove the things in your life you don't want anyway. You're going to be better off through going through it. Because it's going to remove the things in your life you don't want anyway. And again, this is another promise from God. Because there's no way you and I can remove the impurities of our life on our own. If we could, we wouldn't need this verse. If we could just get rid of the junk in our life, just on our own, figuring out how to do it on our own, we wouldn't need James 1. But because we need James 1, this again is a promise of what God says he's going to do for you. So no matter what you're going through, you're going to get more joy than more grief, and God's also going to remove the impurities from your life. So you're better off going through them. But see, what's hard is when you're in the middle of this, when you're in the middle of being tested, when you're in the middle of a hard situation, it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to get frustrated. It's so easy to think, God, are you holding out on me? It's easy to think, God, are you kind of mad at me right now? Did I do something so wrong that you kind of abandoned me? Because honestly, I don't feel like you're that close right now. It is so easy when we go through a hard situation to just wonder, does God really love me that much? Or am I missing out right now? It's easy to feel that during the holidays too when your gatherings are not at all what you expected for this year. And see, this is where the Apostle Paul comes in. The Apostle Paul's advice to us in Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul was just talking about how hard his life is. He talks about trouble. He's talking about trouble. He's talking about calamity. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about growing hungry. He's talking about being in danger, being threatened by death. Paul's talking about what his life is like. He's no so different from those first century followers of Jesus that they're being persecuted for their faith. It'd be easy for Paul to say, yep, I wonder if God really loves me. I'm going through all this hard time. And listen to what Paul says in Romans eight thirty-eight. He says, For I am persuaded that neither life, and neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities nor powers, nor anything present nor anything to come, nor height nor depth, Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does Paul say in the middle of his hardships? He says, I am persuaded. I am persuaded. Who persuades? That's God's responsibility. No matter what you're going through, God is going to persuade you that he's with you. God's going to persuade you that he's going to get you through the situation. God is going to persuade you. The reason that you're a follower of Jesus is because God persuaded you that you needed Jesus in your life. The reason you're a follower of Jesus is because God persuaded you that you're a sinner who needed grace. And if God can persuade us of that He's going to continue to persuade us no matter what difficult situation that we're in in our life. And that's the beautiful thing about count it all joy. That this is a promise from God. That no matter what situation and that God is keeping track of the difficult things in your life and he's going to guarantee you that he's going to give you more joy. He's going to guarantee that you're going to end your life with more blessings than trials. And through it all, you're going to gain more stability and you're going to gain more strength and you're going to gain more courage. And someday you're going to look back and say, that was all kind of insignificant considering what it turned out in the future. And that's why James can end with verse 4 and say, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what God wants to do for each of us this season, this Advent season. Get us to the place where we say, I don't lack a thing. I have every single thing I need. I don't need anything under that Christmas tree because I have everything in that manger. Even though what's in that manger is grief and joy at the same time, it doesn't matter that there's some grief in there because out of that grief in the manger, I'm going to experience more joy in my life, and that's what Christmas is about—receiving more joy than any grief that you'd experience in your life. And that's the beauty of Christmas—that we can be honest, and we can be honest and say, "God, it, math doesn't seem to be adding up right now. The accounting doesn't seem to be adding up right now." And that's where God steps in and says, "As your follower, as, as you are as followers." He's going to persuade you that it's going to work out. That he's going to persuade you that the math is going to work out at the end. You might have to wait another day or two. But just like Paul, shipwrecked, beaten up, you're going to be persuaded. And that's the good news. That there is a new king. That your war has ended. And you got a God that's hovering over you persuading you that it's gonna work out, that he's with you, that he's not gonna let you go, that he's doing the math. He's doing the math for each of us. And we're gonna end up so much more blessed. And some of you, I know your story. It seems like the math is way off right now because it's a hard situation you're going through. But that's when we trust in the promise of God. He's keeping track. He's keeping track of what's going on. And you just keep being like James and saying, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm going to keep putting my eyes on Jesus. And he's going to make it work out. So God, I just come before you today and I thank you for this service. I thank you, Lord, for this service that is such a reminder that you know everything going on in our life For you to make such a bold promise to say when you count it all up, you're going to have more joy, that means you're watching every single thing that's going on. That there's nothing that's happening to me or to the people listening to me that you are not aware of. You're counting it all. God, I thank you that you are such a good accountant. And I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who fulfills every single promise. And so, God, I come before you today, Lord, and I pray, God, that you'd persuade each of us, Lord, no matter what situation you're going, that we would be persuaded that you are faithful and that you are good and that you are kind and that you are loving and that you are going to reconcile the math at the end of the day. God, thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you that you love us. And thank you for this holiday season that we can look in that manger and say again that there's joy in the manger. Thank you, Lord, that joy is always greater than grief. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.